Hi everyone and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with the awesome Najahi events. More about them later. After many years in the business and finance industry, hearing countless stories and interviewing hundreds of business professionals, I've learned that every successful person is good at this one thing, negotiating. So how do you develop this skill and how can you negotiate better? Today's guest is Chris Voss, the CEO and founder of the Black Swan Group and author of Never Split the Difference, negotiating as if your life depended on it. Chris was trained in the art of negotiation by the FBI, Scotland Yard and Harvard Law School. He had a successful 24 year career at the FBI as a master negotiator. Today, Chris gives his time to some of the most prestigious schools in the world to teach the art of negotiation. But what can we learn from his expertise from right here in Dubai? He has used his many years of experience in international crisis and high stakes negotiations to develop a unique program that applies these globally proven techniques to the business world. To sit back, listen and learn all about the world of high stakes negotiation and get ready to apply it to your life and your business. Cue the music. Right, Chris, first of all, it's taken me a year to get you on the show. It took me six weeks to get Tony Robbins on the show. (laughs) (laughs) And to get Tony Robbins on the show, I contacted his manager and his manager said no. I found his publicist in New York and she said no. I sent her a bunch of flowers. She then still said no. And then I sent her six cupcakes. (laughs) Nice. And, And she said to me, why did you send the flowers? And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, I hate flowers, I love cupcakes. You just saved yourself some time if you sent them first. And it was on the back of that that she then said to me, do me a video as to why you want him on the show. Right. I'm going to be on the plane with him. I'll play the video from my phone. Oh, very nice. And that, that's how it happened. Perfect. And since then, it's been uh, you know, much easier to get lots of the kind of guests that I'd wanted to in that space. But you don't fit in that space. You're not one of these business guys. Right. To me, you're a bit different. And the reason I see you as a bit different is that you write a book and that book becomes almost like a Bible for me to listen to when it comes to doing business with different nations, different cultures, different nationalities. And I read it, I listened to it, I read it and then I listened to it again. And a lot of what you say makes me feel like that's a book for every salesperson in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To have no matter what they sell. Yeah, thank you. Did you, did you write it because you wanted to write a book to share this information? Or did someone tell you you needed to write a book? No, well, um, as soon as I left the FBI, I, you know, I had college friends telling me to write a book, but I didn't think we had you know, a whole product, whole system ready. You know, we really, my son and I, working on it together. And uh, so then I was lucky enough to, I got a chance to teach at Harvard, then I, then I got a little more established position at Georgetown. And we started teaching part-time students, which if they're part-time, they're working during the day. That's why they're going to school part-time. How to put these ideas straight in to their jobs. Like, great thing about a part-time MBA student is they're not there for theoretical stuff. Mm-hmm. They're like, I got a problem tomorrow. Give me a way to deal with this tomorrow. And I'll let you know how it went. And so then, then we get a chance to test drive some stuff, some stuff jumped out of us that we didn't think was important. And after doing that for a couple of years, then I thought, all right, we got a book. So your original question was, was I told to do it or did I want to do it? I think both. You know, wanted, wanted, wanted to get it out there, wanted to get it out there. Wanted to know that 
uh, we had um, sort of a system end to end that would work. When, when you read your bio and understand about your history, a lot of people would say that's pretty rock and roll. You know, <laughs> it's kind of sexy, isn't it, to say I was an FBI hostage negotiator and you know, you've done these really cool things, trained by Scotland Yard and stuff like that. I mean, it's it leans into the whole kind of fascination we have with true crime, right. okay, yeah, and, yeah. and the movies that we've watched over the years as well. But how did you get into it? Not get into it, how did you get interested in this subject matter in the first place? Where did it start for you in terms of becoming interesting? Uh, well, when I decided, I decided I wanted to be a police officer when I was about 16 years old. And then for whatever reason, I was drawn to terrorism. You know, the idea that uh, anybody should kill other people based on a political agenda. There's something about that that always really rubbed me the wrong way. Um, so, you know, I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to work it. So I got into the FBI, and as fate would have it, I ended up on a joint terrorist task force in New York City, which was this great hybrid of the NYPD and the FBI. And so I was working terrorism. I was a SWAT guy and uh, uh, screwed up my knee again. But I liked crisis response. The other thing I always liked about crisis response is there's no procrastination. We got to decide right now what we're going to do. And so when I knew that I was going to have a shelf life as a SWAT guy, I thought hostage negotiators, they're always there. When I was on a SWAT team and, you know, we'd get out there and we'd do the exercise and I knew that somewhere somebody was supposed to be talking to him on the phone. It didn't sound hard. You know, I got to talk, you know, how hard is that? And uh, so I figured I could do it and, um, and I got into it and then it was, you know, there were some bumps along the way. I was initially rejected. Mm -hmm. and, and then I got into it, and it was just like, this is, this is cool stuff. To use words to change the trajectory of an entire crisis. And not long after I got trained, there was a bank robbery with hostages. And I went, and we got, we got him out. I got a guy to surrender to me. How did that feel? It was amazing. It's a, it's a rush. It's an adrenaline rush. I mean, you just, you're, you're sort of astounded that your words stop people from getting killed and then got a really bad guy to say, all right, I'm coming out. I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's a high, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. And so then when I was, when I was teaching it, uh, you know, I went from doing it to then teaching it at the full-time at Quantico. Like every class, the crazy thing about it, we'd only teach two classes a year, but there would be about 33 people in every class, and we just knew that the minute we put, release these trained negotiators back into the wild, that weekend somebody was gonna get into something. It always happened that way. That weekend they got home or within the week, like instantly, like it had been that close for me in, uh, in New York because when I got out of the training, there was a siege on the gates of the UN. And um, I waited to get called and I never got called. And I was mad at myself, I'm angry, mad at myself to this day for not just showing up. And when it was over, I checked with the coordinator and she said, look, don't wait, show up, just show, which is how I got into in the middle of things at the bank. 
So I'd, I'd come that close to negotiating a siege that literally at the gates of the UN. And so I knew that was going to happen to other people. And, and we told, we'd always tell them, you know, like somebody's going to get into something before the week is out. And they would call us as soon as somebody surrendered. I remember one of our negotiators in, in Florida called me after he talked the guy out of a siege. And he was, he was, he was high. He was astounded. He was, he felt like I had felt. And I, and I knew it was coming. And he said, you told me this last week. And I, I just didn't believe you. And, but it just happened. So yeah, it was pretty cool. It was, it's, it's a phenomenal experience. You, um, you think about sales and there's people that get into sales because, or, or, or have some success in sales because they think so they have some natural ability to communicate and you know, natural ability to build rapport or in England we'd say the gift of the gap or your grandmother would anyway. And I, I, I'm quite offended by that personally because I believe that selling is a skill. Yeah. And, and it's something that you have to learn. It's a professional skill. If you yep. learn how to do it properly, yep. I think there's people out there that would imagine that they're pretty good negotiators. Yeah, there are a lot that, that think they <laughs> That don't actually have the skills. If, if you were going to take someone like me from, from the ground up and say, right, you're going to school and you're going to learn how to negotiate, Spence, and I'm going to teach you, how long would it take me and then how intense would it be? Is that a five-year thing? Is it, is it, is it, a, is it a, what is it? No, well, like if, if there were there were an intensive training, uh, like we, we focused you, all the hostage negotiation, the best, the the the, the best in the world are uh, Scotland Yard, FBI, um, Canadians run a really good school, the Aussies run a really good school, and all of us steal liberally from one another. It takes about two weeks, in in, in point of fact. I mean, two weeks of intense training. We can get. Any one of those schools or any person similar training, about 80 hours, we can get you up to a very high level. So it's going to be up to you whether or not it sticks. And that's really the issue because it's so, it, can, it can perish so invisibly. When I first got trained, before I became a hostage negotiator, to, get, to become a hostage negotiator, I was told to volunteer on a suicide hotline. Mm -hmm. eminently, I was eminently unqualified initially. I said, go volunteer on a suicide hotline. So I, I went to the hotline training. It was roughly 80 hours of training. And to give you an idea how far it progressed, very first night they give you a sheet of paper with 10 responses somebody might say on the line. Write down what you might say. And at the end of the training, they give you that piece of paper back. Now, I've been told that my handwriting looks like I hold a pencil with my feet. <laughs> So it's fairly distinctive. <laughs> I've never heard that before. <laughs> okay, I think I might. Do so that when too. they handed that piece of paper back to me, <laughs> I knew it was my handwriting. But I looked at those words and I said to myself, "What idiot wrote this stuff down?" That's how far they could take you. Wow. Now the problem with it being a perishable skill is. Over the course of the year, my skills had deteriorated so badly, and I had no idea. I come up from my annual, annual review. This great guy named Jim is reviewing me. He's listening on the other line, the other room. I make the call. Caller, at the end of the call, the caller goes, wow, you're, you're fantastic. That was, you just helped me so much. Thank you. And I, and I hung up. So I'm walking back to the, 
to listen to Jim, kind of going like, ha, 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 exactly. <laughs> and Jim goes, that was horrible. And I'm like, you didn't listen to my call, because my guy congratulated me. He said, let's start with that. That's one of the reasons it was horrible, because he attributed the success of that call to you, which means that when he got off the phone, he's lost without you. And I was like, have I gotten that bad over a year of not attending to the skills, not practicing? You know, it would be like if Tiger Woods never hit the practice green or the, or the driving range. Like Tiger Woods was a maniac for being on the driving range when he wasn't playing. You know, your skills deteriorate. And so we could, and you've already told me that you like to learn and that you believe that skills are learned and not natural. So that gives you an advantage in learning to start with. Mm -hmm. So we could train you up easily in a relatively short period of time. But then whether or not you understand the maintenance that's necessary to stay on top of it. When you consider the, the different industries that you help and the different situations that negotiations required, it kind of encompasses everything, doesn't yeah. it? From, yeah, yeah, yeah. from getting your parents to do something for you when you're younger all the way through to getting your boss to give you the kind of outcome you're looking for to the client that you're dealing with, the, the challenging situation between a few parties at the same time around the table. Is it... To get in a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Yeah, to get in a cup of coffee in Starbucks. Is it... Is it all very, very different? Or on the whole, is it actually all very similar, just nuances based upon the individual situation? Yeah, yeah, it's, that's exactly it. Human beings make their mind up on what they're gonna do pretty much the same, same regardless of circumstances. You know, there's a rule that we, that we live by, never be mean to somebody who could hurt you by doing nothing, which is everybody you talk to. So the flip side of that is, Anybody you talk to could help you if they felt like it. So how do you get them to feel like it? Okay. And then how do you accelerate that? And the decision of whether or not they feel like it is, did they connect with you? Did they feel like you connected with them? Now, in the following steps, what are they going to do? Or what could they do extra? And then is this a one-off? And nothing is a one-off. You know, everybody thinks that stuff is a one-off, but nothing is a one-off. Because anybody that you encountered in your world today, you're likely to encounter them tomorrow. So how is that a one-off? Shopping at a, for a car, shopping at a, at a, at a Home Depot. One of, my, one of my students in Georgetown, in the book, there's a, a section on bargaining. We call it the Ackerman Method. Like, it is a brutally effective way to bargain. I mean, you will get your price. So one of my students at Georgetown uses the Ackerman model to just, just kill Home Depot on a price of cabinets. Just slaughtered them. Best deal he'd ever heard of anybody got on cabinets. Had to go back to the same guy a week later. That guy remembered getting the daylight beat out of him a week earlier. He wasn't about to help him again. Yeah. You know, he thought that was a one-off transaction, but he had to go back to the Home Depot for something else. Are you... Are you studying personality types a lot of the time when you, when you first start to talk to somebody? I'll, I'll try and give an example. When, when I sell something, right. my, the, the first part of any communication I have is to build some rapport. Right, yes. Uh, and I have a process to building rapport. So right. my process will always be uh, work, social, family. 
right. Okay, yeah. because you don't start with family when you don't know somebody. It's kind of a bit weird asking about if you're married and you've got kids. But right. most people are happy to talk about their business. Right. So then you can ask them about their business. They can tell you a bit more about that. And again, living overseas, people have probably more to tell than if we're all based back in our hometowns. Once I've built some rapport, which takes some time, I've got a, a good understanding, or not a good, a better understanding of of what they like, what they don't like, what matters to them, what's important, and, and, and how they feel about the work that they do. Right. Once I've built that bit of rapport, it's, and, and again, in rapport, I'm learning, so I'm asking questions. I'm not really talking. Right. I'm trying to pay attention, yeah? Right. And because I know I'm going to have to speak at some point, and I want to speak at a time that my prospective client wants me to speak. Right. I, it's almost like right. I've, I've earned the right to speak. Yes. Because yeah. I need to share some information. But if I meet them for the first time and I just jabber, 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 then I'm, you know, they're not going to be listening to me. But if they've done 15 minutes of talking and telling me stuff, then naturally people want to learn a little bit about you because of that. And again, this is my process, and you can, you can tell me how it's right It's not I'm a bad process. And then after that, I then can explain a bit about what I do. And then my job then is to learn some more and identify through that learning experience the areas that that potential client might have a problem, a weakness, an issue, a challenging situation that they need to resolve. Once I find out what that is, my job's then to make that issue essentially bigger so that they want to do something about it. Right. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. When it, and I look at that as taking somebody on a path, but I'm, I'm trying to learn at the very outset is this person a driver? What, are they amiable? You know, are they expressive? Are they analytical? Because I know for sure I'm not an analytical. And when I find an analytical, I have to change my game completely, very consciously, because I know they're going to require things that are different from the amiable guy. The amiable guy is going to get on with me no matter what. And it's almost dangerous that he will get on with me because it puts me into a full sense of security from a, from a business perspective. And then I've got the driver guy that... Look, I haven't got time for your small talk, mate. <laughs> I need to buy this. Or I need to sort this out. We need to get to this point. So can we just go there? So in everything I do, I kind of I, I use this process that I learned 25, 30 years ago to infiltrate every part of what I do in business. Right. When you go in and coach companies, doesn't matter what the industry is that they're in. When you go and coach them, is that is is your process being taught that way? Well, first of all, it's really interesting the way you broke that down because um, we break the world down into the same three types. We got different names for them. You called them amiable, analytical, and driver. Amiable, analytical, driver, and expressive, yeah. Okay. All right. So we got four types, which is uh, close to, um, you know, there's, there's a, like everybody's taking a, a derivation of it. Uh, is it, uh, there's, there's a four, four type. I can't remember what the name of it is, but it's from something that's been around for about 30, 40 years. Um, we, we call it three. We call it fight, flight, make friends, accommodator, analytic, assertive. Uh, you're, you threw in the expressive, which may or may not be a combination of a couple of those two. Maybe. But very, almost exactly the same thing that, we, we, that we've broken it down to. We got it from Thomas Kilman Conflict Mode, which breaks the world into five. When I went to Harvard, they knocked two out, broke it down to three. We took what they were thinking and made some tweaks. But again, three types. And it's our, you know, you would probably speculate the world breaks up evenly into those four. We've found reason to believe that the world breaks up evenly into our three. Regardless, 
same, same basic ideas. Now, we don't dial into that right away, but we look for it for misunderstandings or if there's an impasse, it's going to be a tight mismatch. Or there are certain things that are absolute guaranteed misunderstandings, like one of them is going dead silent. You know, with the, uh, with the amiable, the friendship-oriented, the interaction-oriented type, they're horrified over silence because to them, the currency is the interaction and to go silent is to withhold the currency, which is the, um, the harshest thing they could do. I withhold my most valuable currency from you, the silent treatment. Now, the analytic loves silence because they get to think. So you get an amiable across from an analytic or an analytic across from an accommodator or, or term. Like the, uh, the analytical guy has gone dead silent and is grateful for it because he wants to think. Mm -hmm. And he's thinking, thank God, the other person finally shut up because I, I, I want to think. <laughs> and the other, the, the accommodator, the, the amiable is going like, oh my God, oh my God, he's, he's not talking. He must be furious. Oh my God, what do I do? I got to speak up. <laughs> you know, it's a comedy. <laughs> so we, we teach people that it's type mis mismatch. Now we want to dial in on that fairly earlier and we, we got a little bit of a hack, which is similar because you said, Ken said to you, what makes you cool? Yeah. And then you went on a quick journey of your life and he got a really interesting story out of you in about 90 seconds uh -huh. instead of the 15 minutes that you were talking about. Uh-huh. And the mere asking of the question, what makes you cool? I mean, it lit you up. It created an instantaneous state change in you. Tony uh -huh. Robbins, you said, you know, he's had as a guest, he always talks about state change. Yes. So a similar thing that we do is at a cocktail party, I could ask you where you're from, uh -huh. and I'm gonna get stuff out of you about where you're from that you've never told anyone. Uh -huh. Like I was at a party in Hollywood party, and this producer, I had no idea who this dude was. Everybody was falling all over themselves. You know, to walk up to him and uh, genuflect in front of him, you know, stroke him, flatter yeah. him. I finally talked to him. We t I talked to him longer than anybody else did. And when he got done, he goes like, wow, I haven't told anybody that stuff in 20 years. All based on where you're from. Or I can look at you and I go, what about what you do makes you passionate? And I didn't ask you what you did because mm -hmm. a lot of people are leery of that. Mm -hmm. But I, I cause a state change to trigger your passion. Mm -hmm. And it'll light you up very much the same way that the Ken's question, what about, what is it about you? What makes you cool? Yeah. And then you get into passion. And I, and I watch people instantaneously change. And then they start unloading core values to me, which is also what you were just talking about. Yeah. I want to know what's important to this person, how they tick. Do I want to do business with them? Are they going to want to do business with me? Do our core values align? How do I proceed? Uh, my company, uh, we, um, we do EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System, coached by this really smart guy named Jonathan Smith. First meeting, he says, all right, we're going to outline our core values. I'm like, what are you, that's stupid. Work hard, be honest. What else is there to say? <laughs> he goes, no, 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 no. It's more com uh, complicated than that. And then, ultimately, every relationship you have, business or personal, will work because your core values align, mm -hmm. or if there's a core value mismatch, it won't work. 
And then also, if it doesn't work, you don't say, well, you're a jerk, I'm a jerk. You just say, look, our core values didn't line up. Mm -hmm. You know, that's cool. We got, a, we got a value mismatch. You're entitled to your values. Mm -hmm. But it's not gonna work out long term. So you'll go be happier doing business with somebody other than me. That's really what we're trying to dial into. I, f I find this interesting because a lot of people feel like they need to do business with everybody. And if they don't right. do business with everybody, they've failed. Right. And, and that's a big drama, you know, whether that from be the powers that be above them or with their own business, it's kind of like, yeah, it didn't happen. And, 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 and I believe that, you know, you shouldn't be doing business with everybody because right. not everyone is aligned to you. Right. Talk to me about nonverbal communication. Because I think nonverbal communication plays a big part in my, I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you and I'm constantly thinking as I'm talking to you, okay, about things that I want to say that are in your book and repeating stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, don't say that, don't say that, don't say that. It becomes natural because I've, I've gone through your book so many times. But I, I spend a lot of time when I meet people trying to understand them when they don't speak. So I'll check that person out in a room before I'll talk to them. Yeah, oh yeah? good, yeah. You know, and if they're in the corner on their phone, not wanting to engage with people, that's something that I'm very aware of. Um, I can identify the arrogant, obnoxious shit pretty quickly. Um, and that makes me not want to right. you know, step forward and engage with them because you know, I, I've automatically titled them. And sometimes this is wrong, by the way. I've automatically given them a title in my mind, you know, oh, he's a bit arrogant, isn't he? So I've, I've judged that situation. But I find that people talk and share an awful lot when they don't say anything. Right. And there's, there's stuff you can utilize that can be to your advantage. Now, years ago, when you were doing hostage negotiation, I would gather a lot of that would be on the phone. All of it on the phone. Yeah. yeah, so you're not getting that human interaction apart from the silences on the phone and the words they would use. Well, if all that data goes in a tone of voice and you start to dial in, almost all of it is right there. Okay, so <clears throat> yeah, tone of voice, absolutely. So you then go from that situation to being in front of people, telephone to face-to-face, -to, -face, to now, which is more digital than ever before, which is where emails, text messages, become part of the negotiating process. Right. The reason I'm saying this is somebody came to me the other day, not the other day, about two months ago, and they said, can you teach me to sell on WhatsApp? Wow. And I was like, excuse me? And my first reaction was, excuse me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, then I thought, hold on a minute. They're clearly communicating with their clients through WhatsApp. And they wanna know how to close the deal that way. Well. That's where my kind of my skill set run out because I can teach them how to do this face-to-face -face stuff. I can, I can even teach to some degree on Zoom. But if I've only got messaging to use, that's a whole nother skill set. Is that something that you've got experience in and understand? Because I know you mentioned emails, you know, how people don't respond and do respond to emails. So I feel that there's some synergy with that. See, the problem with that kind of a question is, um, it's lazy and arrogant at the same time. They only want to communicate on WhatsApp. So they're not really interested in learning any other way. They're not interested in coming out of their comfort. So they want people they communicate with to conform to them first. 
Now they may be saying, well, I talk to people that they only want to talk on WhatsApp. Anybody wants to confine themselves to a certain type of communications because they're sick of people not listening to them. If you, if you will be paid att attended to, if you will be paid attention to, you'll talk. People are sick of talking to people that don't pay attention. If, you, if you're going to teach me that you're not going to pay attention to me, then no, I'm not going to talk to you. So human beings are drawn to communication modes that work. So if you're trying to confine it to one mode, most likely you're being lazy. You know, I'm good on WhatsApp. That's how I want to communicate. Well, I don't know that you're good on WhatsApp to start with. But you've got to be able, empathy is about adapting to the other side, period. Yeah. You know, the whole gist of everything that the Black Swan Method and tactical empathy is based on. Empathy is about adapting to the other side. Like when I get questions about cross-cultural communications, does this work? You're an American, you know, does this work in China? Does it work in, uh, if you adapt to the other side, you know, if, if you're willing to, to take their cues and show them that you're paying attention to them, there isn't a human being on earth. Uh, you know, you could be up in the Antarctic Somebody pay attention to you, you'd be happy to talk to them. Yeah, man. I'm asked this question. I'm so glad you just said that. I'm asked this question. How do you sell to Indians? <laughs> how, do you, how do you sell to the, to the Chinese? How do you sell? Right. And, and, and I'm like, they're all human beings. Yeah. They're just people. Yeah, but you know, we, 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 the real estate industry is huge here, okay? So, and it's gone up in value like crazy over recent times. So. They're running ads online and people are saying, how much is that one bed apartment in the marina or whatever? And they, they're getting an inquiry, a digital inquiry. And I'm like, pick the phone up and call them and tell them. And like, yeah, no, but yeah, I, I tried to call him, but he doesn't want to speak on the phone. He just wants me to text message the, 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 the price back. And I'm like, we'll still call him. Yeah, yeah. You know, think about what you can say to him. Call him up and say, there's no way in the world I can tell you this by text. I need to talk to you because it's valuable to you. You know, engage in the conversation. Yeah, I know, but you know, I'm from Eastern Europe and it's really hard to sell to somebody from England because they've just got a different approach to us. And I'm like, Meta Kovin was the guy that, that, that said something really profound to me. And Meta Kovin is the guy that spent $69 million buying the, NF, the first NFT at auction in April of last year, yeah. this year. And I sat talking to him and I'm like, you're from India, you had nothing. You learned to code on somebody else's laptop with a, a USB stick. And yeah, you're a billionaire. I'm like, how do you see yourself differently? He said, I don't. I spend all of my time trying to focus on how I'm the same as other people or how I'm similar because we're far more similar than we allow ourselves to believe. Right. And it really, as he said it, it really kind of just sat there with me for a minute because we talk about differences as opposed to the same. And I think that, like with religion, I'm like, well, what's religion all about? It kind of teaches the same things to everyone, doesn't it, you know? What does everyone want to be? Good, good human, good to others, kind to others. They want their kids to grow up and be well-educated and be kind to others. They teach them hard work and good moral values. Well, every religion teaches exactly the same thing, which means we're all reading a book, whether it's the Bible or the Quran or whatever it is, and actually the same stuff's in there anyway. Be a good, be a good human being, you know? <laughs> And so I look at that and I'm like, well, that's, that's be a good human being. So if we're all coming from different religions, but we're all reading a book that kind of says the same kind of stuff, 
then surely there's a lot more about us that's similar to what's different. Right, exactly. You know, I, I, you know Brits, Brits don't understand American sense of humour. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't. We know that Brits struggle to live in America. They struggle to live in America. And, and, and again, it's, it's well documented that they struggle to live in America. I'm like, you struggle to live in America, but your favourite comedy show is Friends or Seinfeld. That's an interesting thought, yeah, yeah. You know, you laugh your face off watching American comedy movies, you know. Um, um, Anchorman or Talladega Nights are your favourite <laughs> movies, you know. You know you, you're consuming that, but you're, you're, you're conscious about how we're different. Why don't you focus on how we're similar? Yeah, exactly. And so, for me, when, it, when we deal with you know, negotiation, it's, it's, it's all about trying to find out what's similar about us. Right. I'm so glad that you said what you said, because it's... Being on the same page really matters to me. And how we're wired emotionally is similar. Yeah. I mean, everybody has the same emotional wiring. It does, it makes no difference. We're all, we all start with the same basic emotional wiring. And then the rest of it is sort of layered on top of that. But if you get back to how we're similar, people want to be understood. And that brings opportunities to you. And so why not show them that you understand, period. Yeah. Have you had some examples over time where you've got it hope, hopelessly wrong? Well, because, because you've written this book and yeah. you're, you're like really well known as being a master negotiator. Like the, the world over, Black Swan, everyone knows. I mean, it took me a year to get you on a bloody show, so I know you're in high demand. <laughs> and so, and so you, you've clearly had a huge amount of success, but there's been some times, I'm sure, that you've had some howlers. And you're like, what of course, yeah, 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 yeah. Can you give me some examples? Well, the first time I showed up in the Philippines to work a kidnapping there, you know, was uh, a Muslim terrorist. You know, they were a terrorist group that said that they were Muslim. You can get into the whole, all the definitions, yeah. which is a complete waste of time. But um, I had worked a lot of uh, terrorist case by people who claimed to be Muslims and, or, and probably were in New York, but they were all Arabs. And so I rolled out of New York thinking I understood um, people who were driven by to commit crime based on Islamic concepts. And what they say, politics are local, right? So we first rolled into the Philippines, and I'm like, oh, these guys are Muslims in the South, you know, let, let, me, let me use the same sort of phraseology that worked on, on the guys that were from the Middle East. And, you know, I remember hitting uh, you know, through the negotiator I was coaching, hitting him with stuff that I knew the guys in the Middle East just resonated with. And he would just like shake it off. You know, like it, it sort of rang a distant bell because theoretically he studied the same book, but they didn't study it anywhere near the degree, to the degree like the, the Arabs did. Like the Arabs, you know, quoting the Quran is a sport. Mm -hmm. You know, the way Americans quote baseball stats. <laughs> Or Westerners quotes any sports. Yeah. You know, the Arabs, I mean, he, he, you sit down and talk to them, to them, you better know what you're talking about. You know, and, but half of these guys in the South, you know, they just had adopted it as an excuse for bad behavior, south of the Philippines. Mm -hmm. So I'm hitting them with stuff that I knew from the Quran, and they were just like, no, no, where's my money? <laughs> <laughs> So it took me a while to catch on, and then I began to find out that their culture, they were from a daring warlike culture, mm -hmm. you know, a, a whole different take. And they prided themselves on having been an insurgency for well over 500 years. 
you know, the Koran came in much later in, in their cultural, in their local politics. So that's, again, why I went like, all right, I got to adjust to how they see it. And if I bring a set of assumptions from another place, chances are they're not going to fit here. And we ended up, um, you know, riding the ship, so to speak, but it took us a few months. Was it, um, in that time, did you, do you think you didn't know what you were doing or, or you think you're out of your depth or? Well, because it, if it's worked before and then all of a sudden it's not working, you must have been scratching your head going. Well, you know, yeah, scratching my head, but I've never been smart enough to know when I've been out of my depth, which has been a lot. <laughs> and so as you progress through your career building this business that you've got, is it, is, it, is it a scalable business that you've got? Is it something that you can continue to grow and grow? Or is it really hard to find people to be really good teachers of negotiation? It's scalable. Um, we're working on specifically design, uh, you know, deciding what the attributes are, the people in, in a different job, right seat, right person, right seat, you know, right? Get it, want it, need it. Do they get it, do they want it? Uh, do they have the capacity to do it? Um, is one of our rules from entrepreneurial operating system. They might have the capacity, but they don't want to do it. You know, I got a lot of former hostage negotiators have the capacity, just don't feel like doing it. Or they don't uh, need it, or, you know, any one of a number of reasons. So finding somebody that has the capacity and wants it. Uh, another thing that's really hard is, yeah, it reminds me of you know, the movie The Matrix when they're waking people up. And uh, um, Neo, uh, um, Morpheus says to Neo, you know, we, can't, we have trouble waking people up after a certain age because they can't adapt. Like, we're, we're taking hostage negotiators that get 20, 30 years of experience, and we want them to rethink everything that they learned. Yeah. And that they haven't been caught off guard in a long time, and they are not used to that. And understanding that that skill set is just, just with a little bit of tweak it fits right in because it's human nature. And so we wait, when we wake them up, it takes a little bit too. And find somebody that's willing to be woken up. Which industries typically contact you to do business with you? Which industries are like, you're kind of like your top three or four? Well, we've probably done more in the healthcare space than anywhere else. Some of that may have been, that's been such a turmoil in the United States with all our changes in healthcare for the last. 10 years or so, that they're a little more willing to look from the outside or looking for help from the outside. But um, we really don't focus on industries. We focus on top performers. What we refer to as the 1%. Those are the people we go after. And you could be doing anything. You could be in real estate. You could be mergers and acquisition. You could be uh, an attorney. But if you're into learning and then if you're into learning, you're going to end up in the top 1%. And it's not just learning by doing, but it's people that, that seek out somebody that can teach them because they want to accelerate their learning curve. If you're into learning, and you could be doing anything, you could be a car salesman, uh, it doesn't matter. We're after what we refer to as the 1%, which are really people that are into learning they like making the world a better place. They like making a very good living, mm -hmm. but that's not what drives them because whatever they're doing is eminently satisfying and they want to get better at it. And it has this great residue where people are actually helped um, 
I was at a reception in Phoenix six months ago. The owner of a private jet company is opening up a, a place in Phoenix to this big reception, you know, for the high-end buyer at a hangar. Mm -hmm. Both the owner of the jet company and his top salesman had both read Never Split the Difference. Mm -hmm. And his top salesman, and they're talking with me about this in front of me. The top salesman used my skills to negotiate his compensation package with his boss who is standing right there and they're both good with it. Love that. That's exactly what you want. When both parties use the skills and they're both good with it. Because they're, they're respecting it, 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 it's a skill. They're really respecting it's a skill rather than being played. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, then they didn't get played. Yeah. They both ended up in a better place. I think there's, for me, that a lot of the time there'll be some form of negotiation where there's a winner and a loser. And to me, that's not a negotiation. To me, the best outcome is everybody wins. Because if everybody wins, everybody walks away happy. And they'll, and they'll want to do it again. Yeah, and if you, can, if you can create that in your business with everybody you do business with, in, in whichever capacity that is, that's a really nice life to live. You know, just as a human being, that's a nice life to live. You know, I, I'll give an example. It's like um, I, I coach some people in the financial services industry in the UK, okay? And I coach them in um, life insurance, for example. And I'm like, the better job you do for somebody, the more money you will earn. We agree that, yeah. But the better job you do for somebody, the better off they will be. How beautiful is that? You can earn That's the most amount point. of money by doing the very best thing for them. Get your head around that and you're into a world of absolute joy from going to work every day. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Because you create, it's, 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 like, it's like you create the ultimate win-win. And, and I, see, I see, you know, there's different types of sales and, and, and I think that the, the insurance as one is kind of like a fear-based sale a lot of the time. Interesting, yeah. Yep. You know, so if you don't have life insurance and you die, then your family are fucked, you know. They really are. Who's going to pay the mortgage if you die, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, who, what, what have they got to live on? Your wife's got three kids and she's trying to bring them up and you're no longer here. Yeah. All because you didn't get it. And so for me, like life insurance and critical illness insurance, these things are necessary. But the reason most people don't have them is that the people selling them are doing the please, sir, would you like to buy some insurance sale? Rather than thinking about the consequences of that particular buyer if they don't buy. You know, and I say, if it was your brother or your sister or your mum and your dad, would you talk to them that way? They're like, well, no. And I'm like, well, why wouldn't you talk to them the same way? If your mum or your dad was doing something stupid, would you tell them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, I would. So when it comes to your client, if they're doing something stupid, surely the outcome for them is a bad outcome. Right, right. So why not give them something that gives them a great outcome? Right. At the end of the day, it's a little bit of money. But that security goes there. And so when it comes to negotiation, it's always, for me, it's always that kind of have that process in your mind, you know, everyone wins. If everyone wins, you know, and whether you're negotiating for stuff that was, you know, way above my, my category with being a hostage negotiator and stuff, but in business, give everyone a win-win. If you can make that happen, then everyone leaves happy. Yeah, and, and they want to do it again. Ah, the other thing, yeah, do it again, do it again. How long have you been, how long have you been doing it as a business teaching 
after you left the, for the police? Well, we, uh, theoretically and technically, like I left, I left the FBI in 2007 okay. and incorporated the business. You know, I was in school at the time, yeah. but I incorporated the business three months later. So, you know, I went back and I did some more schooling. And as soon as I got out, we tried, my son and I uh, started to try to, you know, let people know about the idea before the book came out. That really started in 2008, but it, we didn't really, we couldn't get any traction until the book came out in 2016. So you kind of plodded away into, because you, you weren't a businessman, were you? At the end of the day, you, no. you, nope. had, you didn't have that background. Nope. And in 2016, the book came out, and then all of a sudden people were like, oi, oi, this is interesting. Yeah, it's, it, started, it started to gather steam. I mean, um, it, 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 you know, we just got more and more traction. Then our marketing got better. Um, it was principally my son and I, we, another guy who now is full-time coaching with us, Derek, was helping some. But we weren't generating enough income to keep, any, keep us afloat. And then my daughter-in-law came in and took over the marketing for us and a lot of our organization. My son and I are not particularly organized. You know, we continued to build the team out. And we continued just to con get more traction. And we worked hard and we learned and we just, you know, the book is a phenomenal marketing device, but it, it's not enough by itself. And we just, we've been learning ever since. And then, then we really took off in terms of building capacity and handling demand when we switched to the operating system, the business operating system, which is EOS, which I had no idea what a difference that was going to make to have an actual operating system like anybody that's in a company if they haven't got an actual system that's been designed and there are other versions of this eos isn't the only one but you are not doing as well as you could do without a specific system that somebody designed and just because you made it up as you went maybe yours is pretty good but you're missing pieces and we're at the point now where if we're leery of partnering up with anybody that's not running EOS, and if we do any sort of, now we're looking to make deals where I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna coach you for money, I'm gonna coach you for equity. And you have to put EOS into your business. I do not want a piece of anybody's business that's not running EOS, or that's, a similar system. That's smart. Because we, you know, it, it makes you, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb wrote a book called Anti-Fragile. Mm -hmm. An operating system makes you anti-fragile. Mm -hmm. When the pandemic started, mm -hmm. like everybody else, like it, night fell fast. You know, it was March-ish. We went from, you know, it's the flu to shutdown in like three weeks. 90% of our revenue stream shut off. I mean, just turn the faucet off. And because of EOS, we pivoted online, we set back up in a month and a half, and we had a profitable year. We didn't make as much as we made the year before, but you shut off 90% of your revenue and you stand up a new operation in 60 days. You only do that if you got a system. And we had a system. It worked a treat. 
Thank you so much for coming to take some time to talk to us today. I'm so glad it's taken me a year and it's been worth the wait. And uh, yeah, I hope the rest of your time here in Dubai is a good one. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Can we can we tell people how they could follow up with? I want I want people to know. We'll obviously put all of the links on the on the podcast afterwards. But for people, if they want to businesses and want to engage with you, do they just go to your website or just, is there a... look? The best way is just go straight to the website. Okay. And we got we got a ton of free material on a website. Okay. I mean, a lot. So wherever you are, start with the free stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's it's usable. It's like the book. It's actionable. Mm-hmm. You can use it. Yeah. And for all of you that are watching this right now, I think it's really important, you know, go and grab a copy of the book or get it on Audible and listen to it. That, that's how I learned from it. It's added value to me. And a lot of you know my background anyway. So have that desire to learn, desire to grow. He's the master at this, for goodness sake. You know, you can go wrong with it. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, I really pleasure, appreciate your time. Thank you. Check out the episode. Listening to this, guys, make sure that you on iTunes leave us a five-star rating. And if not, you listen to another podcast app, then leave us some love. But for now, till the next episode, the man Chris Moss is in the house. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world-leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, (laughs) hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. I'll see you soon.